Welcome to this edition of the Just Security Podcast. I'm your host, Just Security's Managing Editor, John Reed. And our guest today is Shahid Fatima. She is a London-based barrister, and she practices at Blackstone Chambers, and she is also a member of the Just Security Editorial Board. And Shahid and her colleagues have drafted a report that focuses on the ways that the international legal system is failing to protect children in armed conflicts. And perhaps most importantly, that report provides recommendations for how to address these failures. And so, Shahid, first, thanks so much for joining us. And, you know, this report comes out at a time when you said that there are more children under threat than any other time in history. And that these, these gaps in international law uh, that, are, that are leaving them inadequately protected can result in generations of traumatized children. So before diving into the, the, the substance of the report... Can we, we talk a little bit about the actual problem? What threats did you specifically focus on that, you know, that children are facing right now? Um, John, we focused on what the United Nations calls the six grave violations of children's rights. Um, so they are killing and maiming of children, uh, the recruitment and use of children in conflict, sexual violence, child abduction, attacks on hospitals and schools, and denial of humanitarian access and assistance. And um, these six grave violations are used as the basis for the monitoring and reporting mechanism, or the MRM, uh, which is the UN mechanism that is used to report on violations and to name and shame uh, the perpetrators of those violations. So that, those are the, the six main topics that we focused on. And why did you focus on these six? So we, we decided to focus on those topics because of the international consensus on their importance. They are, of course, just a starting point um, because there are other pressing issues too. So, for example, um, the issue of children as perpetrators of harmful acts, uh, the detention of children and the position of children as refugees, all of those. Uh, are additional examples of areas that need to be addressed, but we had to draw a line somewhere. And so we thought, given the international consensus on the six grave violations, that we would ring fence them and concentrate on them. Going back to, to the, the current protection for children and how they, are, they may be inadequate, can you describe what they look like right now? So the current protections exist um, at the level of both international law and domestic law. Um, the focus of our report was very much on international law, and within that, we concentrated on three particular bodies of international law. We concentrated on international humanitarian law, or IHL, international criminal law, and international human rights law. Um, and the existing international law protections for each of those areas are contained in a number of different treaties, but they also exist as a matter of customary international law. And a theme that I'll be coming back to time and again is that there is no single instrument that encapsulates the protection for children in armed conflict that exists at the moment as a matter of international humanitarian law and international human rights law. So so really quickly for some listeners who may not be experts on the international legal system, uh, first of all, can you can you kind of run through at a very very high level the difference between international human, humanitarian law (IHL) 
international human rights law, uh, international criminal law. And then also, when you mentioned there's no single instrument encapsulating the protections for children in arms conflict, how does that fit in with what you mentioned a, a few minutes ago with the, the monitoring and reporting mechanism that people can use to name and shame violators? So, um, first of all, in terms of a, a quick high-level description of the three areas, international humanitarian law is sometimes referred to as the law of armed conflict. Um, it consists of the rules that govern the way in which armed conflict is actually fought, and it extends to both states but also to non-state armed groups. So it essentially says how the conflict should be governed um, as a matter of international law and sets out the, the rules uh, that, that should be but are often not complied with. International criminal law is um, embodied in the Rome Statute, and it provides a basis on which individuals can be prosecuted before the International Criminal Court, and that's usually uh, engaged where the domestic criminal systems in question haven't undertaken prosecutions, and the prosecutions are uh, set out, the, the, the crimes that are covered are set out in the Rome Statute and include, for example, war crimes. Uh, lastly, international human rights law um, is a body of law that is usually regarded as binding states only, although um, there is increasing academic debate about whether it does extend to non-state armed groups, and it usually consists of obligations that a state is required to protect um, for people within the jurisdiction of the state. So, for example, the right to life, freedom of expression, the right to privacy, it covers a whole range of rights that are regarded as being in existence in both peacetime, but also in times of conflict. So those are the three uh, sort of general descriptions of the bodies of law. In terms of your question about the MRM, so the, the monitoring and reporting mechanism is essentially a mechanism that the UN system uses to report on violations of children's rights that are occurring in armed conflict by reference to the six grave violations, but it doesn't provide a mechanism for individual accountability. It, it, it operates at quite a high level of generality, and although it's very important, um, it isn't an adjudicative accountability mechanism, and it isn't embodied in a treaty as such. So it doesn't, it isn't a, a systematized way in which accountability can be brought to bear in what lawyers would regard as an adjudicative framework where you have a judge, where you have parties that are represented by lawyers and which results in a judgment. It's, it's, it's far more of a, a form of political accountability. Okay. And, and then what about then also uh, how does domestic law factor into this? And, and how did, you know, how, how come you didn't touch on that, how, how various states' domestic laws can be brought to bear? So domestic law is extremely important because domestic law implementation and enforcement of international law is a really essential way of securing international law accountability. Um, however, as uh, with the point about the sixth grade violations, we needed to ring fence our research and so we focused on international law, but that doesn't diminish in any sense the important role that domestic law and domestic courts have to play in securing accountability. 
Okay, so moving on to the actual the, the, the failings in international law, you mentioned that there are several systemic flaws in the current international legal system that seem to, you know, they, they, they really center around an incredibly complex system of laws. And also that there is no, as you just mentioned, kind of adjudicative body to, to, to help provide justice. Can you, can you talk more about these failings? Just before, before focusing on the specific failings, I should make a couple of preliminary um, observations just to contextualize the rest of my answer. Um, so two, two quick points. First of all, zooming out for a moment, um, protecting children in armed conflict obviously requires multidisciplinary consideration, and the law is just one of several strands that uh, are engaged. Other strands need to be considered and developed. Perhaps most importantly, consideration needs to be given to increasing political support and accountability. But there are other important um, matters too. So, for example, supporting the physical and emotional well-being of children and taking account of other factors such as educational, economic and social cultural issues. So, I want to make sure that our analysis is understood as being located in that much wider multidisciplinary context, because although we've assessed the law and legal mechanisms to see if they can be improved and strengthened, we don't on any level contend that the law alone can provide a solution to the suffering of children in armed conflict. So that's the first preliminary observation. The second, and following on from that, is that in the um, analysis that we're going to carry on discussing today, I should point out that we haven't, and and quite deliberately so, applied a political filter to uh, our analysis or the recommendations. And so we haven't analyzed the potential prospect of political success. And the reason for that is, as lawyers, we've done what we are qualified to do, which is to do the legal analysis and make legal rec- recommendations. There are obviously others who are far better placed to decide on the political feasibility of what we've suggested. But also, the reason why we didn't apply a political filter is that would be very much to locate our analysis in the present time frame. And we don't regard these recommendations as being time sensitive. We don't think that they have a use by date on them. And so even if they weren't to be regarded as being politically feasible in the present political climate, there may come a point at which uh, that changes and they are able to influence legal debate and development. So uh, against the backdrop of those observations, in terms of your question about why are the current international laws failing to protect children, We think that the substance of the three bodies that we've already referred to could be improved, and we've made certain specific suggestions in that regard. So in relation to each of the six grave violations, we've identified where we think that the law is vague and could be clarified or is underdeveloped and could be developed. But the principal flaw in legal protection is attributable to two systemic flaws. And those systemic flaws exist in IHL and IHRL. Um, I'll come back to international criminal law or ICL later. But the first systemic flaw is that, as you've mentioned, the legal framework of both IHL and IHRL is incredibly scattered and complex. And so, you know, if you were to think about uh, bringing a case for a client, 
um, to decide whether or not they had any rights or remedies in a situation uh, where a child had been harmed in the context of armed conflict, you'd first of all need to advise your client on the nature of the conflict. It might be an IAC, uh, an international armed conflict between states, or it might be a NIAC, a non-international armed conflict, which is usually a conflict involving a state and a non-state armed group. And so from, from the very beginning, you've got to engage with what can be a factually and legally complex question. Different then, rules apply for those. I'm sorry, to, I, I don't mean to interrupt, but different rules apply for those different com- conflict right, situations, exactly. right? Exactly. Yeah. And, and that's why you need to uh, engage with that preliminary classification, because if you were to imagine a flowchart, once you've identified which conflict you're in, you then have to follow the route down the flowchart flow chart in terms of which instruments are applicable, um, how they apply in terms of the level of detail. There's a different level of detail for IAC and NIAC provisions. Um, and you have to hunt around in multiple instruments. So the Fourth Geneva Convention, Additional Protocol 1, Additional Protocol 2, and each of those has a different commentary. And so you have to consult a number of different sources of law. You then have to consider customary international law, um, which may involve considering how a treaty provision interacts with a similar provision of customary international law. And then finally, John, you have to think about international human rights law, because that may give you, uh, in some cases, additional protection. It may provide your client with additional rights or remedies. Uh, But that in itself raises complex questions because the international human rights law may not apply in the conflict scenario. There may be issues as to how it interacts with the IHL rule. And all of that um, will engage definitional issues, perhaps textual ambiguities. And so the process of advising a client is uh, one that is, we think, uh, unnecessarily challenging and difficult. In that legal mix that you just mentioned between treaties, between IHL, IHRL, why aren't there enough protections in there that overlap? Why do we need to, to, to worry about this, to get really hung up on that? Well, you're right that there may be protections that overlap. So you could have uh, a rule that exists in both IHL and IHRL, or you may have a rule that exists in a treaty provision and also exists in customary international law. But the point is that you have to go through the legal analysis on several levels before you actually work that out. And it's one thing to work out these complexities as a lawyer when you're advising a client, um, as as I just posited in my hypo, um, after the event. But it's another matter altogether and potentially far more complicated to try to work out in advance what legal framework applies to a particular conflict situation and in what way. So the law is likely to be especially difficult to navigate for both non-state armed groups and victims because they're fundamentally uh, in a position where they're just less likely to benefit from access to expert legal advice and representations in states. So so we've just mentioned how it's, it's in, a, in essence, it's almost inaccessible because it is so complex. It's inaccessible to certain stakeholders, for lack of a better term, right? Yeah. Victims for, for, exactly. for armed groups that aren't, you know, states, some militias. Um, so that's the, that first flaw is this incredibly complex mix. 
But then there's also no single single adjudicative body. Can you talk about that and Absolutely. how why that's needed, what it would look like? So um, that second systemic flaw uh, of, of the fact that there is no single civil international adjudicative body seems to arise out of the fact that the existing framework is so scattered and complex. Now, the reason that that's a flaw is it makes it much harder for victims to secure accountability on the international plane, um, given that there is this lack of a single civil body. So, for example, a victim would need to go through the process at the moment of working out or trying to work out which, if any, of the existing international adjudicative bodies might be able to receive and determine their complaints. And they may end up, after that analysis, in realizing that, in fact, there are no such bodies. Um, it also means that domestic implementation and enforcement of the relevant IHL and IHRL is less effective because you don't have a single body with oversight of how states are implementing their international law obligations and whether or not they're doing so in a way which could be improved. So that, that's the second systemic flaw. So the, this this body would be able to, to kind of oversee the way that states are implementing these protections? Yeah, so um, in the suggestion that we've made, which say that if there was a single international um, civil adjudicative body, not only would it provide a forum in which complaints could actually be resolved, an adjudicative forum, but it would also have a role in uh, monitoring the domestic implementation and enforcement of the relevant uh, international laws themselves. And, and so you've, you mentioned this would be a, a civil body, but what about international criminal law? What about the... Right, know? so, so um, you're, you're right to pick me up on that, and I think I mentioned at the beginning that I would come back to ICL later. So we don't think that international criminal law is subject to the same systemic flaws that exist in IHL and IHRL. The reason for that is that we consider that the Rome Statute captures in one document the relevant international criminal law, so you know what the criminal law is um, in a way in which you can't so easily know what the relevant IHL and IHRL is. Um, and there is also a single international criminal adjudicative body, i.e. the International Criminal Court. So. Both of the two systemic flaws that we identify in humanitarian law and human rights law have already, if you like, been addressed in criminal law because you have one instrument, the Rome Statute, which clearly identifies international criminal law, and you have one single international criminal adjudicative body, the ICC, which is responsible for providing a forum for the resolution of prosecution. And you kind of you touched on this earlier, but one more time, why isn't the international criminal framework enough? The the ICL framework here. So, so the the international criminal framework provides a way to have international accountability for specific offences committed by specific individuals. What it doesn't do is give you any kind of systemic accountability in terms of what states are doing. So. Um, it, it's at a level of granular enforcement, if you like. It doesn't address the way in which a state uh, or an armed uh, non-state group fights a conflict. That's something which is embodied in international humanitarian law at a general level. Um, and it doesn't um, identify a state's 
more proactive obligations which are often to be found in human rights law. So yes, criminal law is incredibly important because it means that the individuals that are perpetrating war crimes or uh, other crimes are being prosecuted, but it doesn't give you the systemic um, accountability that is provided by IHL and IHRL. And okay, so then, then moving on to the the actual the 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 the, the core tenets of the proposal, uh, what how how do you suggest improving the substance of international laws? So throughout the report, which is some six hundred pages, we've made specific suggestions, as I mentioned earlier, in relation to each of IHL, ICL, and IHRL. Um, by reference to each of the six grave violations which we've given um, a chapter to. So, for example, with killing and ill treatment, we've got certain specific suggestions. We've got others in relation to recruitment and use and so on. Um, The way in which we have approached this is to describe potential improvements in really three broad categories. So, first of all, some of the existing legal protections of vague or they're ambiguous and we've suggested ways in which they could be clarified. Um, Second, some legal protections are underdeveloped or in some cases non-existent and we've suggested ways in which they could be strengthened or developed. And then the third category is that there are some international instruments such as the two additional protocols that I've already mentioned to the Geneva Conventions and also the two substantive protocols to the Convention on the Rights of the Child that we consider would benefit from more widespread ratification in order to enhance the substance of the available protections, but also there are some treaties that would benefit from more widespread ratification in order to enhance accountability. So I'm thinking in particular of the optional protocol and the communications procedure. That provides for the possibility uh, of complaining to the UN Committee on the Rights of the Child. But the problem is that, John, there's only 37 states that have ratified the optional protocol so far, when, which is pretty um, concerning when you compare it to the 196 states that have ratified the convention. In fact, the US is the only state that hasn't ratified the convention on the rights of the child. Um, but apart from the optional protocol and the communications procedure, the Rome Statute, which we've already discussed, um, could also benefit from further ratification. So that's been ratified by 123 states so far. But again, greater ratification would mean greater prospects of pursuing prosecution before the ICC. And so I should actually say in relation to those three categories, that in relation to the first and second, i.e. laws that are vague or laws that are underdeveloped, We've identified a number of issues as we've gone through the chapters um, on which we think that the Committee on the Rights of the Child could usefully issue general comments. And general comments, um, for listeners that may not know, are authoritative statements which explain and state the relevant law. So, for example, we've suggested general comments in relation to which provisions of the Convention on the Rights of the Child apply during armed conflict, which is an issue which is not entirely clear. Um, and on such matters as the denial of humanitarian access and the human rights law framework in relation to attacks against schools and hospitals. Can you go back to the, 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 the protocol on a communications procedure? How would that work, right? If that, if that is 
ratified more widely. What does that look like for for listeners who may also may not may not know how that that kind of a, a mechanism would would function? So the way that that so that that's an existing mechanism, right. which as I said, thirty seven states have already ratified. The way that that works is. Um, say you have a state that has ratified the Convention on the Rights of the Child uh, and maybe one of its two substantive protocols which uh, relate to the recruitment and use of children and uh, the sale of children, child prostitution and pornography. So say you have a state that's ratified uh, one or two or three of those substantive instruments. If that state has also ratified the optional protocol and a communications procedure, then what it means is that state is accepting the jurisdiction of the Committee on the Rights of the Child to receive complaints against the state. So if you are somebody who has a complaint about the state, so for example, you say that it hasn't uh, fully implemented or complied with a particular convention provision, then you can actually initiate a complaint directly against the state uh, before the Committee on the Rights of the Child, which is a paper procedure primarily, but it means that you um, essentially have access to an adjudicative mechanism which resolves your complaint. So when your complaint is received, it would be passed on to the state party. The state party would essentially put in a defense or a, a reply document, and then the Committee on the Rights of the Child would adjudicate on whether or not there had been the violation alleged um, and if so, in what ways? And so that's what that optional protocol does. It provides an adjudicative mechanism um, for individuals to bring complaints against the state in question. Okay, so then kind of moving from that back to the systemic flaws that you, you, we, we talked about earlier, what are your suggestions or what does the report suggest for, for resolving those flaws, the complexity and the lack of a... a, a, a one single civil international adjudicative body? So our response um, to the first systemic flaw, the, the complex and scattered nature of the law that we've talked about, is to say that consideration should be given to collecting in one instrument the applicable treaty provisions that are presently in a range of different instruments, and also to codifying relevant customary international law. and. We say the virtue of having one instrument instead of the multiple existing instruments as well as customary international law is that it will make it easier to identify the law and that this in turn will make it easier to disseminate and explain the law, including to non-state armed groups and potential or actual victims. And if that process is initiated, then consideration could also be given to whether it's possible to consolidate norms. And this is something that we, we talked about earlier in response to one of your questions. So for example, where there is a consistent and overlapping legal content and it exists as a rule of humanitarian law, but also as a rule of human rights law, then they could be brought together in one consolidated rule. So you don't have to compartmentalize the substance of the provision in question. So that, the single instrument idea is really to try to meet uh, that systemic flaw of the, the scattered and complex nature. But our response to the, the second systemic flaw, the lack of a single civil adjudicative body, is to say that such a body should be created or identified 
in order to monitor the implementation of the single instrument that we've suggested, but also to be able to adjudicate on complaints if the provisions are violated. What would this single instrument look like? What form would it take? And, and, and what would the adjudicative body look like? Is that a new, is that a new international court for children? How, how would this all so, work? So, I mean, this is something that we've, we've made some suggestions on, but obviously it, it's a matter for debate if it, if it does get taken forward. And, and our suggestion is uh, that one potential form for this instrument would be as a fourth optional protocol to the Convention on the Rights of the Child. And our principal reason for suggesting this is that if the instrument takes that form, then it means that the existence and expertise of the existing committee on the Convention could be used. So you avoid the need to set up and finance a completely new institution. But of course, the CRT committee would, we anticipate, need to be modified. For example, it would need to include individuals with more expertise in humanitarian law, and it may need greater funding uh, and uh, administrative assistance. But we also anticipate that the CRT committee that was given this amplified role uh, could be assisted by the special representative for children in armed conflict as well. But the the form of the instrument that we suggested is really driven uh, with a view to trying to use an existing international body, um, and that's why we think that the fourth optional protocol would be one possibility. Fantastic. And and so we we've spoken about uh, states a lot, countries a lot. But um, what about non-state groups? I mean, so much of today's conflict is between you know. It, is is very vague. It's between various actors who aren't necessarily states, various actors who aren't states and states. It's it's a it's a mix. And how does the how would this work in that context? What about these non-state groups? How do you how do you get them to adhere to the to 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 this instrument? So the first point is that in terms of the substance of the instrument, the the rules that we've identified um, are rules that already bind both state and non-state armed groups as a matter of international humanitarian law. So the substance is something which would be regarded as applying to them even now, even without a codified instrument that uh, fully encapsulates the the range of norms. Um, We would anticipate that states would obviously be encouraged to ratify it, uh, but we would also want non-state armed groups to be encouraged to uh, come on board. And the way that they would do that, um, we suggest, could be through the use of an identified process where they pledge to uphold the standards in the instrument. And, so, and there's something that we've uh, been inspired by, which is a mechanism developed by the NGO Geneva Call. They've developed something called Deeds of Commitment. These are deeds that contain principles of international humanitarian law, which non-state armed groups are invited to pledge to uphold. Uh, and there is, in fact, a specific deed of commitment that relates to children in armed conflict. And so we've taken our inspiration from that model in suggesting that non-state armed groups are invited to pledge to uphold the single instrument that we've suggested. But they should also, like states, be encouraged to accept the related competence of whatever single adjudicative body is set up, uh, including, you know, if that is the CRC committee, as we suggested. Um, I mean, the only point, I suppose, of real distinction between states and 
um, non-state armed groups is that states would have a positive obligation to implement the relevant parts of the instrument into their domestic laws and to enable the enforcement of those norms by domestic courts, which is something that non-state armed groups are simply uh, unlikely to be able to achieve as a matter of practical reality. But otherwise, we would want to include them within the scope of, of our proposals. I'm curious how much how much traction, do, especially, and how much success have, have we seen with, with the deeds of commitment being adopted by non-state armed groups? Um, you know, how... And how much traction does that have? Well, so if, if you want to judge traction in terms of commitment, um, I think at the last count there were 26 armed uh, non-state groups that had pledged to uphold the specific deed of commitment relating to children in armed conflict. And I believe that Geneva Call are uh, in dialogue with uh, that number again in terms of trying to get them to, to pledge. And, you know, that, that's not a number that is to be uh, sniffed at. It, it's a remarkable achievement that this NGO has achieved in the sense of being able to communicate with these groups and to have them commit to uh, what are uh, public pledges to uphold international law principles. Now, I think you could always have a discussion about whether or not the, the pledging uh, equates to compliance on the ground, but I think it's very difficult to assess that uh, at a level of generality, and it would need to be something that is focused on in terms of the specific conflict and the specific group. But certainly as a general approach, in terms of enhancing accountability, it's a huge and positive step forward. And that kind of leads to my, my next question, which is, you know, what are the biggest challenges to the single instrument idea and how can they be overcome? You know, I mean, part of what when we were just discussing there a second ago made me think of, you know, how do you, we move ahead with this at a time when in some ways the international legal system feels like it's under threat, under attack by some of the, the you know, the, the countries that used to be its its foremost champions. I'm, I'm, you know, talking about the United States right now. For, so, yeah. yeah. Well, I think there are certainly challenges in in terms of taking the idea forward. I think the principal obstacle, as you've um, identified, is a political one rather than a legal one. Uh, but as I said at the outset, we, we haven't prejudged that. Um, it would be very easy, of course, to do so, as you point out, given you know what many international lawyers might regard as a retreat from multilateralism and um, an increasing inward-looking nature of certain prominent states. Um, but that's something that uh, we haven't thought to prejudge. And I, I guess I, if our proposal gets the support of the legal community and of the NGO community, then it might start galvanizing political support at the state level too. Um, but I think there are at least two other challenges to our idea. First of all, there's a reservation which uh, we've already um, had expressed to us by some commentators, which is, that drafting a single instrument is going to require a revisiting of existing legal protections in both treaties and customary international law, and that this is an undesirable thing because it may lead to those protections being diluted or diminished. Um, and so we've had to consider what that challenge would actually hold. And I guess I would say in response to that, that first of all, there's always a risk. Whenever you focus attention on the reform of legal protection, that's 
that attention could mean that they become less protective. So it, it's an ever-present risk. Um, the difference, I suppose, in, in this present context is that the relevant existing substantive treaty protections are for the most part widely or almost universally ratified, as I mentioned. The Convention on the Rights of the Child is 196 uh, states party to it. And the relevant existing substantive rules of customary international law have been identified by the Red Cross by reference to extremely detailed evidence of ongoing state practice. So although the political reality uh, of the current climate may mean that, yes, unfortunately, there are some states that might try to dilute or diminish the existing protections, they will need to confront the potentially unpalatable uh, political and legal consequences of taking that stance. And I think in any event, um, regardless of where that might end up, and of course it's not inevitable that it does end up leading to a dilution or diminution, but in any event, it will mean that there is attention focused on this issue and that there is a debate. And so that may result in a positive change uh, because the renewed political focus might mean that there's an impetus to try to improve the protections of children in other ways, even if it doesn't result in the single instrument. And I suppose just finally to tie up that point, we we would say that you have to weigh up this risk of diluting substantive legal protections as part of an effort to improve the law um, against preserving the status quo, where although the protections exist in theory, there is an egregious lack of compliance in practice. And so we think that if you're weighing up um, both of those things, then the virtues of greater clarity and coherence and enforcement outweigh those of potential dilution. And then I suppose that the last challenge is, which which would only really arise if this idea does get political support and is taken forward, is that the actual drafting and implementation of such an instrument is, is likely to be uh, tricky. For example, um, there, are, there are a range of difficult conceptual and practical legal problems that we can anticipate, uh, such as the fact that the instrument would need to address the different objectives of the competing IHL and IHRL legal regimes. But we don't um, regard those legal obstacles as being insurmountable. And there is precedent in the form of the Convention on the Rights of the Child, um, which shows that a single instrument can address both bodies of law in the co- context of children's rights. What's the way forward once it is published? How do you ensure that it doesn't become a report that is published and then gets lost in the ether? In terms of how it doesn't get lost in the ether, well, we're hoping to trigger debate um, over the proposals by speaking at a range of institutions and to a number of stakeholders. Indeed, we've already spoken to a number of uh, stakeholders as part of the advisory panel um, before finalizing the report. And uh, we're hoping that the interest will lead to a a debate, a dialogue, um, and that it will snowball and that hopefully we'll be able to harness whatever interest and momentum we can get in the most positive way. But, you know, again, I think this goes back to the issue of political will and impetus and Yes, of course, we have a responsibility, having written a report, to um, make sure that it's heard and read and discussed. But to a large extent, um, 
it will be, you know, the, the forum of public opinion that's going to determine whether or not it gets traction and um, is salvaged from being lost in the ether. Shahid, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure. Thank you, John.